This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for April 8th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up, staff writer Adrian Cho. He joins me to discuss a new threat to physicists' standard model, a heavier-than-expected measurement of a fundamental particle called the W boson. We talk about if the measurement is likely to be correct and what it means if it is. Next, we have researcher Ahmed Zaid. He talks about a global survey of ocean-dwelling RNA viruses. The results double the number of known RNA viruses and suggest new phyla are needed to categorize all this newly discovered viral diversity. Now we have science staff news writer Adrian Cho. He wrote this week about a surprising measurement of a fundamental particle, the W boson. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. I'm a little bit unsure of my footing around a W boson. So let's start with that. So the W boson is quantum particle that's like a photon. Most people are familiar with the idea that light consists of photons, which are these strange massless quantum particles. The W boson is a little bit like that, but instead of conveying electromagnetic forces, it conveys the very weak nuclear force. Whereas a photon is massless, the W boson is very massive. It's, it's about 85 times more massive than a proton. So the electromagnetic force is associated with the photon, or you could say the photon is the particle that carries the electromagnetic force. And then now we have the weak force and it's associated with the W boson. I'm very familiar with electromagnetic forces, but less so with the weak force. Can you talk more about that? There are four forces of nature. There's the electromagnetic force. There is gravity, of course. And then at the subatomic level, there are two nuclear forces. There is a strong force, which binds particles known as quarks together in trios to make up protons and neutrons. And then there is a thing called the weak nuclear force, which on Earth mostly causes a type of radioactive decay called beta decay. But it also plays a very important role in the sun. And without the weak force, stars wouldn't shine. So let's get to this new measurement. It's uh, surprisingly large. It's going to say in all the headlines. But what are we comparing it to? What other measurements? What other predictions? 
Particle physicists have this theory, which they developed in the 60s and 70s, called the standard model. The standard model is this really interesting beast in that it's now complete. It predicted 12 different types of particles that count as matter and four different types of particles that convey force. So now all of those particles have been observed. The standard model is like a clockwork. It all has to work together. And so it turns out that from knowing the masses of other particles in the standard model, you can predict very precisely what the W mass should be. And so what this new measurement does is it measures the mass of W bosons that are created in these collisions where physicists fired protons into antiprotons and made these very, very messy fleeting collisions. It takes the measured value and it compares it to the value that they've calculated using other data in the standard model. And they found that the new value is significantly bigger than the predicted value, which suggests that maybe, just maybe, there's something else out there besides the standard model particles, which physicists would love because it would mean that there's something waiting to be discovered. Yeah, Adrian, I feel like we're always talking about little tiny chips away at the standard model. And this is another one of those. So how big is this chip? Like how far off is the W boson from the predictions that researchers had when they went into this experiment? This team produced the most precise measurement yet of the W mass, and it's a hundredth of a percent. So it's a very, very precise measurement. And their measurement has only half the uncertainty, they claim, of the previous measurements. And it differs from the prediction by an amount that's seven times bigger than the experimental error. And in particle physics, that would be a huge, huge, huge deviation. If you're over five times the uncertainty, people declare an absolute discovery, and they're even farther off than that. So this is meaningfully bigger than the prediction way outside of the margin of error. What about previous measurements that have been done? So this is where it gets a bit tangled because there are other experiments that have measured the mass of the W boson. And this measurement, which comes from a group at Fermi Lab, Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory outside of Chicago, and actually comes from an experiment that's no longer running, an experiment called CDF that ran in 2011. Wow. So this is old data. This is old data. And this group, CDF, they published a preliminary value in 2012, and it took them another 10 years to grind through this calculation, this measurement. But their measurement doesn't agree with previous measurements, and it doesn't agree with the measurement made about four years ago by another group with an even bigger detector at an even bigger atom smasher at the European laboratory CERN. Their measurement which has a bigger uncertainty, is nonetheless in agreement with a standard model. So it's a complicated situation because you have this value that doesn't agree with the standard model, but it also doesn't agree with a number of other experiments. And it doesn't actually even agree with the 2012 value from CDF. From the early data. Yeah. So this is an outlier. And so the question is, how likely is it that it's correct? I mean, is it raising a lot of eyebrows out there? 
yes, people, especially experimenters, are, I think, pretty cautious about this one or are going to be. I think that there will be people, theorists, speculating about, okay, what's wrong with the standard model and what new particles or forces or phenomena do we have to add to it to make it right? But I think there are going to be a lot of experimenters who are going to be saying, what's wrong with one of these measurements? Because they're measuring the same thing. They should agree. So the possibilities are either the old measurements are wrong, the new measurement is wrong, or somebody has underestimated their errors. I mean, if the error in the new measurement were bigger than this discrepancy might overlap. Well, and even if they don't get to the point where they overlap, the discrepancy becomes less significant statistically. So how do you sort this all out before even more measurements are made? Are people who are doing this kind of physics going to rely on this newest measurement, the old one, the predicted? A couple of things are going to happen. One is that there's going to be an, an enormous amount of talk back and forth between the CDF researchers, the folks at Atlas. There's another there are two more really big detectors at CERN, and all these folks are going to be going and looking under the hood of each other's measurement and trying to figure out why they don't agree. There will be new values coming out. The CMS collaboration is supposed to have a value. People are hoping it will come within a year. One of the wrinkles here is that the particle physics is an interesting field in that it actually has an institution called the Particle Data Group that keeps track of the official community-wide agreed values for parameters like this. And so there is a particle data group value for the mass of the W boson, which is a weighted average of several measurements made over the last couple of decades, even longer than that. And they will have to figure out what to do with this value. It's such an outlier they are not going to just be able to throw it into the average in some sort of easy way. They're going to have to address the fact that it disagrees with the average they had before by a lot. CDF is claiming that they have the most precise measurement ever of the W mass. And that, I mean, if you ask physicists, they'll tell you that's why this publication is important. It's not the value per se, it's the fact that the uncertainty is so small that makes it merit a high-profile publication. But at the same time, they're reporting this value with, they claim, the lowest uncertainty ever. And when it gets mixed in by the particle data group to the more or less official value for the mass of the W boson, the uncertainty is pretty surely going to go up because they're going to they're going to have to say you know why is this thing so different than what we had before that's really interesting well adrian we keep mentioning that some physicists will be excited that this is a potential crack in the standard model what kinds of things does this discrepancy suggest could be wrong with the standard model well, so these indirect measurements, this is what's known as precision physics, where you take a standard model particle and you measure its properties with some exquisite precision and you look for a deviation from the predictions of the theory. And it's a very powerful technique because it can tell you that there's something out there to be found because the properties of these particles actually through quantum effects depend on whatever particles it might be possible to make because they'll, those will be lingering 
in so-called virtual existence in the vacuum around the actual particle. And depending on what's sort of virtually there in the vacuum, they can change the particle's property. So that's a very powerful tool, but it's not a specific tool at all. All it tells you is maybe there's something out there lingering in the vacuum, you know, so heavy that we haven't been able to produce it yet at an atom smasher that's fiddling with the properties of these particles. So it's an entree, if you will, for theorists to indulge their curiosity, and people will come up with lots and lots of explanations for what's going on. This conversation is really reminding me of when we talked about the magnetism of the muon. You know, we had that conversation within the last year, and that value is also not necessarily lining up with predictions from the standard model. Yeah, the muon magnetism is is exactly like this. It's another one of these little places where the standard model appears to be not quite right. There's a third one that people talk about, which is there are these particles called B mesons. The fundamental particle in it that's really interesting is this thing called a bottom quark. But the decays of the B mesons also to be, you know, not exactly as the standard model predicts. Physicists call these things anomalies. So there's this hope that these anomalies somehow can be fit together. There are theories that predict particles beyond the standard model. There's one called supersymmetry that has been a favorite, but, you know, has kind of fallen out of favor because... Nothing's come up yet. Yeah, technically that the Large Hadron Collider in Europe should have found the supersymmetric particles by now, but they haven't found them. So there are these ideas and there is this hope that maybe somehow these anomalies will all fit together. Is there any way of saying they point in the same direction or they all just point away from the standard model in some way? I think they probably all just point maybe away from the standard model. I, you know, people have, people are very, very ingenious. Right? So they'll come up with lots of ways to make them, them all work. Yeah. One of my favorite things about the sort of terminology of uh, particle physics is that, you know, when it comes to taking a theory like the standard model and applying it to the real data, making it so we're not talking about ethereal principles, we're talking about calculating what actually happens. Physicists call that phenomenology. And they call these places where the standard model doesn't quite work, maybe looks like it's, you know, maybe possibly wrong anomalies. And so now, because this standard model has proved so reliable and so predictive, now there's all this kind of thought about these anomalies. And I think, I think particle physicists need to have a new word. They need to talk about anomalogy, which is the, the study of these anomalies, right? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, see if it goes anywhere. That's great. All right. Thank you so much, Adrian. My pleasure, Sarah. Adrian Cho is a staff news writer for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with researcher Ahmed Zaid about surveying RNA viruses in the ocean. Before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, 
you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org news, scroll down a little bit, and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news, scroll down a little bit, click subscribe on the right side. In the world's oceans, about 70% of the living stuff, the biomass, is microbes. And that huge, huge mass of microbes, 20% of it is killed off every single day by viruses. This turnover of tiny organisms killed by even tinier things drives the base of the marine food web. And when we know this happens, and we know there are millions of microbes all over the place, every spoonful of ocean, we actually don't know that much about them, particularly the RNA viruses. This week in science, Ahmed Zaid and colleagues write about their research into RNA viruses in the ocean. Hi, Ahmed. Hi, Sarah. When I hear RNA virus, I think human disease, one specific disease, actually. You can probably guess which one, but there are RNA viruses in the ocean. Yes, but we know that from very few studies, for more than two decades now, our and other groups have been studying viral abundance and diversity in the global ocean. But the majority of these studies focused on DNA viruses, the ones that kill microbes. And we see all of these amazing visuals all around the internet. From these previous studies, we learned a lot about how abundant and diverse DNA viruses in several ecosystems, not just the ocean. And we also learned about their important ecological roles across different ecosystems, including the ocean. For RNA viruses, however, almost all of the previous studies were focused on specific oceanic sites or regions with no real systematic sampling of the global ocean, or were just focused on those RNA viruses that cause diseases in human, animals, and plants. How were you able to get a global sample of RNA virus from oceans around the world? In our study, we had access to an incredible resource provided by the experts from the Tara Oceans Consortium. And this resource was the Ocean Plankton Community Transcriptomes, or the metatranscriptomes. The SHIP from Tara sampled 120 different sites across the global ocean from 2009 to 2012. And it also circumnavigated the Arctic Ocean in 2013. That's a lot of ocean. How big was the data set that you started with? So in total, we had around 28 terabases of global ocean RNA sequences that we wanted to mine. And it was, as you said, a transcriptome or transcriptomic. So this is all RNA? That is exactly right. So all of the RNA that is coming from the whole community and this specific data set, we didn't target the viral particles. Hmm. So how can you figure out how many viruses you had in a sample? If it's just this massive RNA, you're kind of looking for novel viruses, right? As well as seeing, you know, anybody that's related to somebody you've seen before. That was one of the most difficult things to face in uh, studying RNA viruses, that we are trying to look for signatures that we can commonly find in known RNA virus sequences. So the most common way that people try to target or identify RNA virus is by looking for the hallmark gene sequence, which is the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, or RDRB for short. And the problem with this hallmark gene is that it's very divergent. It can escape the classical ways of looking for the sequence 
Yeah. Why don't you tell me more about that? Did you have to kind of randomize the sequence that you use to look for a sequence? No, we, we introduced an automated pipeline that allowed us to identify RNA viruses in large datasets like ours in a sensitive fashion. So our pipeline is using rather than the reference sequences to compare the new sequences that we are mining against, but uses instead profile sequences. So it basically stores information at each different site across the RDRB domain sequence. So it compares the new data against a profile that is storing all of the information from the previously known reference sequences, and that increases its sensitivity a lot. It also runs in an iterative fashion. So every iteration, it integrates the new sequences that we find in our data set, and it updates the sequence profile. That's very cool. When you ran through these terabytes of data, how many new RNA viruses did you pick out? And how does it compare to the pile that we already knew about? How much more did we get? So we looked at the species level clusters. And that resulted into around 5,500 species rank clusters. 5,500 RNA viruses that have not been seen before. Is that a lot? The reference databases have a lot of RNA virus sequences. I think it's around 100,000 of them in GenBank. If we de-replicate them at the species level, we might end up having around 4,000 of them. So we can say that we might have doubled the number of species. You didn't just find new RNA viruses. You basically found new phyla, big swaths of unexplored territory in terms of the RNA virus family tree. So how did you figure out that they were new phyla? And what does that mean exactly for these viruses? In our early attempts, we tried to put them into the classical framework, grouping all of the RNA viruses into five phyla. And we were surprised that the sequences were really divergent from anything that we're seeing. And that led us to start thinking out of the box and start look for other methods other than the classical phylogenetic methods in order to organize the RNA virus sequence space, specifically looking at the RDRB domain. So what we did is that we developed an iterative clustering approach. This is also one of the new things that have not been used before in the RNA virus research. And to our surprise, when we tried to benchmark our approach against the mega taxonomic framework that had been previously developed, we found that our approach near completely recapitulated the taxonomy that was accepted by the International Committee on Taxonomy of Viruses. This taxonomic classification used to be done in a very laborious phylogeny-based methods, and it involved a lot of manual curation. And that can result into varied perspectives, depending on the person who is doing the analysis. So we wanted to develop a method that is reproducible and it can be used across different studies and result into what we hope for, like a, a stable a structure. After adding all these new species, these new phyla, you took a fresh look at the RNA virus family tree. Did you see shifting in the branches with the new analysis that you did here? Our findings argue that all RNA virus genome types the double-stranded RNA viruses, the positive and negative sense single-stranded RNA viruses have multiple evolutionary origins. And that's quite different from what have been proposed before. Yeah, and that's what happens when you double the number of phyla. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One of the very interesting things that we are proposing in our paper 
that the viruses of our newly suggested phylum Taravirikota are uh, at the evolutionary origins of RNA viruses. It was previously thought that the viruses of Lenarvirikota, this is the positive sense single-stranded RNA phylum, is at the base of the RDRB global phylogenetic tree of all RNA viruses. And that was supported by several observations that some of the viruses of Lenarvirikota infect bacteria and other viruses in the same phylum infect the mitochondria. And these mitochondria infecting viruses are just made of the RDRB with no capsid and typically have short genomes that are less than five kilobase in length. So all of these are primitive characteristics that give additional support for suggesting the Narvarikota to be at the base of this diversity of RNA viruses. However, all of these primitive characteristics of the Narvarikota viruses were also found in the Taravarikota viruses. So we found that almost all of the Taravarikota viruses in our dataset had short genomes and only encoded the RDRB. One big difference, however, is that when we conducted the 3D structure analyses, which are more informative than the standard phylogenetic methods, we found that the RDRB of Taravarikota viruses to represent the missing link between reverse transcriptases of retroelements and the RDRB of RNA viruses. This is really exciting, and if it's true, it implies that Taravirikota RDRB represent the capsidless RNA replicon ancestor of both retroelements and RNA viruses. And maybe Taravirikota existed in the RNA peptide world at the start of the life on Earth. Wow. Very cool. It is very cool. If I were curious about what these RNA viruses do, the new species, the new phyla, you know, depending on where they live, they have different roles in ecology, I'm assuming. How, you know, how would you go about figuring that part out? That's an amazing question, Sarah, but I want you to stay tuned. Our group is currently working on a new study that is specifically trying to answer these questions. Okay, great. Thanks, Ahmed. Thank you so much, Sarah, for having me. Ahmed Zaid is a research scientist in the Department of Microbiology at The Ohio State University. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy and Megan Cantwell. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.